listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. This is the third and final Sunday in which we're dealing with portions of a three-chapter section of the Epistle to the Romans in which we watch as Paul wrestles through what he understood to be a crucial matter in the life of the early church. To recap, Paul is utterly convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, and that he is Messiah for all peoples, all nations. Yet Paul is deeply troubled because so very few of his own Jewish kinspeople are prepared to see things in this way. Equally troubling, he's aware that there's a growing tendency in some quarters of the church to say that Israel has had its chance. And because it has not risen to embrace Jesus as Messiah, it has been effectively excluded and replaced by the church as a kind of a new Israel. Now, passionate as Paul is about his ministry to the Gentiles, he simply will not go there. Somehow, Israel is still a crucial part of the whole story, still the chosen. And so he needs to find a way, a theology, in which to say that. Well, once again, I'm afraid that the architects of the lectionary have done Paul no justice in their selection of texts. And so this week, I've again expanded the reading in order to give us a more full version of his thought. In the lectionary version, which is actually quite short, the reading starts with the opening verse and a half of Romans 11, where Paul asks, has God rejected his people? And then answers immediately, by no means. And then it jumps us ahead to verses 29 through 32, which offer this really truncated summary of his perspective, of his answer So I had us read some verses on both sides of those verses. But even that makes it a bit hard to get at what he's working with. And so, in his commentary on this passage, on this chapter, this is how Frank Crouch summarizes the long piece that we miss. He writes, In those omitted verses, Paul starts with his own genealogy, winds through Elijah and Baal, the Exodus, prophets, and Psalms. Then he turns onto a road with an overlook of Israel's stumbling and how that opened a door for the Gentiles. That road merges into an extended metaphor of an olive tree with one root supporting both natural or Jewish and grafted or Gentile branches. Paul ends his journey with a warning to Gentile Christians not to think that because God has granted them salvation, God therefore has cut Jewish people out. There's an insistence 
in Paul's argument that says that even though it might be hard to see, God has clearly not thrown in the towel on Israel, even if Israel seems to have stepped aside from this Jesus movement. And so Paul writes, do not claim, now remember he's writing to uh, Gentiles, do not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. Don't imagine you can see or know everything, in other words, because this is what Paul quite bluntly calls a mystery. As regards the gospel, he writes, the Jewish people are enemies of God. Now that's some language. They are enemies of God. For your sake, what in heaven's name does he mean by that? The Jews are enemies of God for your sake, your Gentile sake. Well, the full and radical inclusions of the Gentiles was scandalously unthinkable to many devout Jews. In fact, the very idea of a crucified Messiah was what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians a stumbling block to the Jews. It was seen as a kind of a heresy, really. And yet, as they back away in a kind of revulsion from what the Christian movement is teaching, Gentiles from all around the Mediterranean world begin to flood in and to embrace this great good news of a merciful, forgiving, and redeeming Lord for all. But Paul doesn't stop just there. He says, enemies of God, for your sake... The door's been opened as they backed away. They made more room, in a sense. Enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can't reverse them. The gifts, the calling, the choosing of that people, irrevocable, can't be taken back. Even if right now, in the Rome to which Paul wrote his letter, or in Corinth, or Philippi, or Ephesus, or Colossae, it would appear that Judaism and the Christian movement would never find a common way. Never. Yet the promise remains. They will. As Paul Actemeyer comments, because God can use even rebellion and disobedience in his plan of mercy on all, we may have utter confidence in that God. However, his plan may seem to be going awry. Nothing, not even the rejection of his own son by his own people, could affect God's purposes of grace. If God's ways are past finding out, his mercy is past any impeding. If God's ways are a mystery, hard to understand, doesn't look like what's supposed to happen is happening, if that's all true, God's mercy is past any impeding. Now, isn't that one heck of a proclamation? 
God's mercy is past any impeding. Yes, it most certainly is, which is why Paul positively rhapsodizes his way to the end of this section. Once he finishes kind of laying out his position, his understanding, his sense that there is a common future for Israel and the Gentiles together, once he lays that out, he starts to all but sing, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments. How inscrutable God's ways. No one can know the mind of God. No one can tell God to whom mercy and love are to be shown. For from and through and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. And he even punctuates the end of this section with an amen like he's singing it. I think there's some rhapsodizing to be done over Paul Actemeyer's comment that in St. Paul's view, God can use even rebellion and disobedience in the plan of mercy. I really like that. That says to me that alongside of things like rebellion and disobedience, God is quite able to use our failings, our struggles and doubts, our wounds and vulnerabilities, and to use them rather handily. Thank you very much. Think of the parable of the prodigal. Now, standing on the steps behind me is a reproduction of Rembrandt's great painting of the story of the prodigal. It's gifted to us by a family from the church. Tonight seemed the right night to put it out. Because if you think of that parable, what is it that lands the younger son back in the arms of his father? It's that moment of realization that he has made an utter mess of things, that he's blown it all and lost it all, and he goes limping back to his father to ask for forgiveness. And what keeps the older brother sulking out in the garden, refusing to come in to the feast? It's his righteous conviction that he has been oh so well behaved, he can't see any wounds or any brokenness in his own life. He's blind to it. Yet God can use the struggles, the wounds, the vulnerabilities, the failings of that prodigal to bring him home. Same with us. I think it's fascinating that on the same night that we hear Paul rhapsodizing about the wideness of God's mercy, the irrevocable nature of God's promises, the lectionary also had us read the gospel story of a very nervy Canaanite woman. Now, in that story, as you hear it, it's hard not to feel just a little bit of discomfort over the way that Jesus initially responds to this woman's plea for help for her spiritual sick daughter. He says nothing. She calls out for help. He says nothing. And then when the disciples give him a bit of a push, not to help her, but actually to tell her to go away because she's such an irritation, he looks at them and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I think that if St. Paul were to comment on that statement of Jesus... 
He'd say, yes, that is the shape and order of Christ's earthly ministry. It was directed to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The expansion of the gospel to include all people happens in the light of Pentecost. But really, Lord, you're really not even going to speak to her? She, however, is undaunted, and I really like that. She comes back like a mother protecting her cubs. She's prepared to do whatever it takes. And so she came and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, help me. To which he rather coolly answers, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Oh, now that, that's got to sting. It stings me. But again, she's undaunted and quick, quick-witted as well. She comes right back at him saying, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And it's like that. A switch gets flicked. Woman, he says, looking at her. Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. So yes, Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, was about the lost sheep of Israel. But as N.T. Wright comments, as with so much of what happens in Jesus' public career, the future keeps breaking in to the present. Even as here, seeming to catch Jesus himself by surprise. The future is what Paul is living in, in which people like that Canaanite woman are already fully included, fully incorporated. In fact, that's the kind of people the church was made of. But that future has kind of broken in to Jesus' ministry. The hinge on which it has turned is a determined mother desperately seeking healing for her child. That's powerful. I think it's fair to say that this story marks a kind of a birth moment for the radical inclusivity that Paul will later preach. And I think it's equally fair to say that it really quite does surprise Jesus when this woman comes back at him like that. Perhaps even that it expands and deepens his insight into the depths of what it is that the Father has called him to incarnate in the world. And what is it that the Father has called Christ to incarnate, to enflesh, to live out, to embody in the world? The truth that God's mercy is past any impeding. Full stop. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.